You're listening to audio from The Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit tvcresources.net. Good morning, church family. My name is Shelley Beattie. I'm on staff in Human Resources, and my husband and I have been members at The Village Church for 15 years. Our reading today is in Luke chapter 12, verses 32 through 34. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is the reading of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Shelly Beattie is one of the nicest human beings God's ever made. And Josh Patterson's looking for a job. So if you have, if you have a company or something like that, would love. He's got four kids, so let's make sure that guy, his mouth doesn't create issues for his children. Or maybe we let him learn that lesson. I'll pray about it this afternoon. My kid. Hey, in all seriousness, eight minutes for a survey when we've gathered to make much of Jesus, that, that kind of frustrates me. But a couple of things. I, we're not putting on a show here. This ain't theater. We take very seriously the book of Hebrews says that we will, as elders, stand and give account for how we have shepherded and loved you. So you, you want to know where our mindset is and why we would spend eight minutes just to figure out who are we actually responsible for right now? It's that we take serious that the scriptures say that we will I see some of our elders say, we will give an account for how well we have loved Shepherd and pointed you towards ultimate reality. And, and so that we're not doing this so you can get some spam emails from us. We're not doing this to increase our, we're, we're trying to go, okay, God, who are we ultimately responsible for here and who are we not? There's a lot of you, close to you know, over 5,000 in all. And so we want to make sure we're taking serious God's call on our lives to love and serve you well, to, to make sure as best we can, you have every opportunity to grow into the fullness of what Jesus died to bring about. And so thank you for uh, the time. Uh, it, it really would help us if, if at some point, probably not in the next 20 minutes, but after that, um, to, to fill out the rest of the survey. Again, we're not interested in data collection. We don't sell that to anybody. It, this is because we fear the Lord. And, and want to do right by, by him and, and the charge he's given us uh, to love and serve you. So, so that's, yes, a welcoming home. Yes, I, I want that. I'm, I'm an extrovert. Yes, please. But I also feel the weight of having to stand in front of God and give an account. That's no small thing. That's a real thing. And that's part of what's going on in this survey also. All right. Um, now, I'm going to spend the next 25 minutes giving you a, a basically a homily, like a, a, a pre-sermon to next week's sermon. All right, so that, there you go. That's what I'm going to do. But let, let me dive in this way. Louis XIV or Louis the Great or the Grand Monarch or the Sun King. Those were all titles that Louis XIV went by. Uh, he had the longest reign in modern European history. 72 years he sat on the throne of France. And when you think about France, you're thinking about Louis XIV. 
Uh, all that we know about French power, and I know there, there are varying degrees of maybe uh, how we understand that, but, but when we think about France, all that's French culture, uh, that, that's beautiful or good that we'd be drawn to, that's Louis XIV, man. He, he was the one that worked tirelessly for 72 years. He turned France into the European superpower of his day. He consolidated power. He unified religious factions. He had military campaigns that made France feared across Europe. He was an arrogant, miserable human being. One point when he was confronted on what was viewed as an overreach of his power, he infamously responded, I am the state. Right? Like, what? Like, you can't, France can't do this. I am France. Sounds like a guy like you, you wouldn't have over for dinner. Right? He, he was just full of pomp and vinegar and capability. I mean, dang, the guy did it. I mean, grinded it out. And upon his death, he has this long list of exactly what he wants at his funeral. They inlaid his coffin in gold. It was in a very specific uh, chapel uh, where he could control light. He had a long list of things he wanted said about himself. And as you can imagine, he, he had a really high opinion of himself. And he had the room set up so that they would light a single candle as his funeral began. Uh, and, and it's packed out, and the light was specifically set up so it would reflect off of the gold coffin and illuminate the room so that wherever you were in the chapel, what was lighting the chapel was the reflection of the candle off his golden coffin. And, and Bishop Maslan, who, who was the, the bishop at that point, the Bishop of Clement, he, he takes the, the stage, if you will. He, he comes up behind uh, the, the pulpit and, and he licks his fingers and he extinguishes the candle. And in the darkness, he says, only God is great. Okay, we got that? Now that you're excited, let me tell you where we're going. This week and next, I want to talk with you about Christian generosity. I want to talk with you about money. Oh, oh, see? See what happened? <laughs> Only God is great. You're like, yeah! I want to talk with you about You get your hand out my pocket. <laughs> there are few idols more fiercely defended than our money. And Okay, so let me help you breathe. There's no offering coming at the end of this. There's not, now if you'll check your phone again, we hacked you. You can, we've got your checking account. Put in the number or we won't let you leave. None of that is going to happen. See, here's what's interesting. Jesus taught a ton about money and never took an offering. And he tied money to the human soul. But I don't, I started with this story because I don't think you can understand money until you understand the preeminence of Christ. I don't think you can understand money. I don't think we'll live like we're supposed to. I don't think we'll utilize it for what it's been given to us for until we see Christ as first and best. See, here, here's a little secret. Maybe it's not a secret. Everybody tithes already. A tithe doesn't mean 10% if you grew up in church. A tithe is first and best. 
So when we tithe, we give the first and best of what we have to something. So everyone in this room gives their first and best somewhere. Jesus says that reveals what's actually going on in your heart. So Jesus is preeminent. He doesn't come in second ever. You might put him in second, but he ain't second. You tracking with me? You you might have a list of things more important than him, but that doesn't mean that's his actual spot. That's you out of step with reality. No accusation gets reality. We all right? It's going to be fine. I'm not taking an offering. I'm not. It's just not coming. It's not a campaign on the horizon. It's just, I'm just trying to, Jesus is going to say, not only is he preeminent, but how you spend your money is an MRI onto your soul about what you actually value the most. I'll ask a personal question here, but we're friends. Anybody ever had an MRI? Anybody been through that process? I've had about 400 the last 13 years. Had brain cancer a while back, and you get to, get to hop in that tube quite a bit if that's your backstory. And so here's what I'll tell you about that. The MRI is not like the CT scan, right? Or like an x-ray. It's far more detailed in what it shows us. An MRI doesn't give two squats about how you feel or what you think. or what. There, there's no guesswork once you get the MRI done. When you get the MRI done with colors and depths and, and all sorts of different angles, you see exactly what's going on inside of the person. Well, how you spend your money, according to the Bible, is that kind of MRI so that you might say, if you and I were to sit down and have uh, you know, a cup of coffee or something, I was like, hey, what, what's your first and best? What, what's preeminent in your life? You might say, well, you know, the, you know God is, uh, my family is, my wife and my kids are, my, my husband is, my kid. but... The MRI of how you spend your money would show you actually what's first and best in your life, right? So you're tithing right now. The the question is to what? And if you get that answer, then, then you know, eradicate all the Sunday school class pressure to give the right answer, and you'll arrive at what you actually value most in your life. And this has everything to do with spiritual health and freedom. Like, look, I love you. Jesus isn't after your money. He's after your heart. Tracking with me on that? Like, go back and read the Gospels. Jesus isn't even after, like, moral conformities after your heart, which is why he can say, you have read, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, if you have lust in your heart. You have heard it said, do not commit murder. But I say to you, if you have anger in your heart, Do you see what Jesus is after? Like like he's after the depths of your soul, not some external moral action. He's after your heart, not your wallet. He's after your spirit being set free, not being kind of stuck and in bondage and enslaved to a thousand other lesser gods. And so I want to talk about money this week and next. And I want to talk about it for the good of your soul and the good of mine. I don't want anybody to feel guilty. I know some of us have had some situations that have set us up in a bad way. And and so you don't need, one of the reasons why it's so important for us to know that God alone is great is because some of us have really made a mess in this area of our lives and we need to know that the grace of God covers that too. Like we don't leave this place in shame ever. We might leave this place corrected. We might leave this place with the gentle pressure of the Holy Spirit to conform more into the image of his son. 
But, but we never leave with shame. That, that's not the Christian way. So keep in mind that this idea that only God is great and the preeminence of Christ needing to be in place so that we can make sense of money, that the, all that's in place. So wherever we have failed, and man, maybe you, maybe you racked up some significant credit card debt, maybe you had some medical issues, maybe you just kind of bought into the hype of the affluent suburbs and you were driving cars and living in houses you can't afford and you feel the stress of that all the time. Let's let the book weigh on us so we might bring us into the freedom of what it means to be the children of God. Can we do that? Okay, great. Well, I mean, you're here. You can walk out, I guess, but I'm, that's my plan. So let's look at this. This is Luke chapter 12. It might, be, it might help you uh, that Luke chapter 12 um, is Luke the Gentiles, uh, right, writings of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you've read uh, Matthew 5 and forward, you've read the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew, uh, a, a Jewish follower of Jesus. And you know, you've got Luke, a Gentile follower of Jesus, letting us know the same sermon. And they lay beautifully on top of each other. Some kind of take, they're gonna come at it a little bit at this angle because of the Gentile background or this angle because of the Jewish background, but both lay on top of each other beautifully. And so this couple of verses that we're about to read that Shelley already read earlier. They, they're, they're right after that section of the Sermon on the Mount where he's like, hey, don't be anxious. Don't worry. Don't. And, and I love the way these couple of verses start because you get a sense of God's delight in you and his love for you, not his condemnation of you. So let's look at it together. Starting in verse 32, Luke 12. Fear not, little flock. For it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, where a treasure, with a treasure in heaven, in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, so I love the way he starts, fear not little flock. When it comes to um, money and wealth and the idea of wealth, there's two primary ways we get a little anxious. We, we get a little afraid. The, the first is uh, we can get uh, afraid of the future. And so let me read Jesus's words to you. This is Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Money makes us feel like we're in control, <laughs> doesn't it? Like to have money, there's a feeling that I can control my safety. I can control like the family dynamics. I can control. So there is this compulsion in us that money will create for us the kind of future that we most want for ourselves and those around us. It is an illusion and it is unbelievably powerful. Like the pull of money as a means by which I can be God 
right? With money, I can get in the kind of neighborhood I want to get into. With the, 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 if the right kind of money, I can give my kids the lives I want for them. With the right kind of money, I can give my spouse the kind of life they want. With the right kind of money, I can, right? It's this illusion of I can control my world if I just have enough cash. The anxiety is the world's unstable and crazy. And if I can get money, then I can manage it. And, and Jesus is saying, no, no, you can't, but, but take heart. Don't, don't be anxious because I got you. Like you don't need to be in control because I am in control. And, and yet the number of men and women that are completely bound and trapped and stuck because they've tried to leverage money as their God without even being aware that that's what they're doing is I'm telling you, it, it's a pandemic that the kind of soul crushing debt that haunts so many of us in a place with so much money. Like, listen, I, I wrote this sermon knowing that I'm speaking to, unless you're watching online, right, I'm speaking to upper middle class, white collar men and women by and large. There's outliers here, but our community is filled with upper middle class, white collar work. Now, that means you make, by world standards, an insane amount of money. But if I were to ask you right now, how many of you feel like you make an insane amount of money? There won't be a lot of hands raised. Why? Like, because we, many of us were so leveraged, so pushed to the hilt as we try to play God, as we try to make sure our kids turn out a kind of way and then we're safe in this space. And we're, and this might be a good time to say, Jesus doesn't hate money or wealth. Like he, he's surrounded by wealthy people in his earthly ministry. He doesn't despise wealth. He just knows it makes a crummy God. Like he, he's not anti-wealth. Like even, I mean, even if you follow the story to the end, it's a, it's basically a billionaire that gives up his, his grave for Jesus. Look at this elaborately wealthy man that's following Jesus's ministry and then gives up his tomb for him. Jesus doesn't help hate the wealthy. He's warning you make this your God. You're going to get yourself in trouble. Right? So, so that's the first fear. Don't, don't be afraid of the future. Only God is great. His advice, look at the birds. Look at the birds. Uh, aren't I taking care of the birds? Aren't you more valuable than the birds? Do you not believe that I have you? Again, this isn't permission to be lazy. This isn't permission. Well, he's got me. I'm going to do what the birds do. Play. No, he says, look at them, not be them. It's not the same thing, right? Second fear. Not only is there a fear of the future, but then there's a fear of perception. Uh, there's two levels of this. I'm going to keep going with Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6, starting in verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you a little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? 
For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. The temptation to get sucked back into the economy of high school life is profound in an area like this. What I mean by that is there is a fear of perception that we think money can purchase for us the perception of others as seeing us as successful or put together or we'll show them back then. This is a powerful pull on our hearts. You know how I know it? If I ever have to drive one of my kids' cars, anybody have to do this? It just a dynamic happens. You got a car in the shop or something like that. And you got like, sorry, I got to borrow your car. You know, like, I don't want anybody to see me in this car. Is that just me? Don't make me feel alone up here right now. Like, no, I've, I've worked harder. I've done more. I've got a nicer car than this. Like there's this draw. Like we want to be perceived as though we're successful. It's an identity thing. It's, it's high school all over again, except in high school, at least we kind of knew some of the people we were trying to impress. Like in this environment, we're just trying to impress people we don't even know. And we'll put ourselves in harm's way to get there. And then I want to draw this to your attention. Stuff has spiritual power attached to it. Let me prove it to you. Have you ever, have you ever noticed that when you get something new, it could be a new phone, it could be a new car, it could be new clothes, it, be, it doesn't even matter what it is. When it's new and it's fresh, look at me, you actually feel like a better person. Are you with me? Like you, you just feel like you're a better person. Man, those pants didn't make you a better person. That car didn't change your character. That new house didn't all of a sudden create a brand new you. Whatever you were, you still are. But there's something about it. It's spiritual. It's profoundly powerful. Like the new iPhone 27 or wherever we are. Like it doesn't change the fact that you are what you are. And yet the pull is to what? Get it. You don't own anything that's not either going to be sold in a garage sale or buried in the dump. You hear me? Everything you own is the stuff of future garage sales and landfills. Everything. And I know some, again, I know where I am. Some of you are like, well, I've got my great grandmother's hutch. Congrats. That, that really is pretty spectacular. The Bible says, all right, this is Ecclesiastes, that somewhere down your bloodline, somewhere downstream, there's what the Proverbs calls a fool or what I will call a moron who is not going to value Gigi's hutch quite like you did and it will be the stuff of future garage sales or landfills. There is no escape from this reality. And so he's saying, hey, this fear that you have of perception that you think you've been given money, that you've got money to somehow kind of show that you're successful or show that you matter or show, don't do that. Only I am great. Get your greatness from me. Not from that stuff. Be free of that pool. I say you're valuable. I say you're beautiful. I say you're worth it. Let that be enough. You don't need $200 pants. I got you. 
And isn't it true that everything new gets old, <laughs> right? Like how long that iPhone 27 lasts before iPhone 28 comes out? You're like, this thing's lame. <laughs> oh my gosh, does that mean I'm lame? I need the 28. This is, I'm telling, I'm trying to lay before you the spiritual realities that Jesus is confronting here. He's like, don't. But then he goes on to this. I wish I had more time here. Again, I'm preaching a whole other sermon that's similar but more robust next week. And I'll know if you skip. I'm just letting you know. If you're like, great, going to be out of town. Um, Here's what he says. Like, fear not. Why? Because the kingdom is yours. I, I don't know if you know this. Some of you know this. Not all of you know this guaranteed like return ROI guaranteed. Like you, you give money. I'm going to guarantee you. I roll it back. You have to already be wealthy to get into that game. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you do know that. Like some of the buy-ins for that kind of ROI are like 250 K. I guarantee I can kick this back. Bottom line, like baseline buy-in 250 grand. I mean, that just cut 99% of us out, didn't it? Uh, like 250, like 250 bucks. I got 250 bones, but, but I got 250 grand, right? And, and yet the ROI on this investment is global and eternal and doesn't cost you a dime. It is global and eternal and uh, the kingdom is yours. And he says, it was the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Who are the wealthy ones? We're the wealthy ones. Who, who are the rich When it comes to global, eternal reality, the people of God are. Why? Because it's the Father's good pleasure to give them the kingdom. And then he gets into possessions and stuff and money. He says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Um... Again, I I think it would be, I I think you've got to point out that a lot of people have taken passages like this historically and tried to lay a kind of poverty theology uh, onto the people of God that that doesn't stand uh, up against the pressure of the scripture itself. It's not that poor is better than rich and and the, the Bible's filled with men and women rejoicing in the good gifts of God's grace. And so this isn't like, oh, I really want this truck, but it's ungodly to buy this truck. Maybe it is, but maybe it's not. That's a soul level question that you need to work through. And upon the purchase of anything, the Christian rightly sees it as a gift of God's goodness and generosity welling up in the person worship of God's goodness towards them that leads to greater generosity from them. Are you tracking with what I just did there? Let me say it again. If your compulsion to purchase, to get, to acquire, to, I don't want to use the word hoard, but, but your, your, your impulse to, I really want one of those, might not be a bad impulse at all unless it's tied to your identity. I need this truck. I need this house. I need these clothes. So perception or control future. Now, now we've got some soul level work to do. But sometimes you just like things. They make your heart happy. They're tied in some weird way to how God's designed you. I'm not talking about shop therapy right now. That's a whole nother, like you're just stressed out and drawn to target. I think you, there, there's something, I wouldn't have said that in the nine. I can tell you that Lauren was in that one. She, uh, like you're just like stressed and so you got to go buy something. I think you got to dig into that. What's, what's going on in that moment where your compulsion is, I just got to get something new real quick. But sometimes there are things that are tied to how God made us. And a, and a purchase could stir up in us gratitude 
to the king of the universe. Thank you, Lord, that you've given this. It doesn't complete me. I receive it as a good gift from you in a way that stirs up gratitude that leads to greater generosity because God is preeminent and he moved towards me in love and then he trusted me with this money. Like, you know, all of it's his. Like, you don't have any money. It's God's money. God has always seen every penny you have is something he has given to you so that you might steward it. God will not judge you based on what you did with your money. You don't have any. He does. And it's through that lens you might receive his blessing and pour out that blessing on others. This isn't a poverty mindset. This is enjoying the preeminence of Christ, moving towards us first and then bringing our first and best to him. And this kind of becomes the foundation of how you have to have all the conversations around money and tithe and offering and what are the differences between those two. It's ultimately all about the preeminence of Christ. Is he in your life first and best? I want to read, it's an extended quote, so forgive me for that. Um, It's from the Epistle of Diognetus. I'm sure you've read it. You probably love it. Um, It was written around 150 AD, so right in the middle of Rome, really trying to stomp us into the ground. And there's there's a lot of mystery around it. We know it's dated around 150 AD. Uh, We know it was written to Diognetus. We don't know who wrote it to him. We know it was a Greek. So it was a Gentile Christian who's writing an apologetic back to whoever this is to explain what we are, right? And you can look it up online and read the whole thing in 20, 25 minutes. Uh, I'm gonna read just a small section of it that he entitled The Manners of the Christian." And he's just going to talk about how they lived their lives. And I want to talk about it so it might bear a little weight on us. We might dream about the kind of community we could be. Here's what it says. For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a particular form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines, but inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. I I don't, I got to spend a little time. I know, I know where the clock is. This is speaking to what is normal to you and I that Christianity brought to the world, namely a diversity of color, background, and socioeconomics. And the Christian community was the first to transcend racial barriers and locations and socioeconomics and have these gatherings of people from different ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds. It was wildly confusing to the first century world. And the more the church can continue to be a kind of plausibility structure to the kind of madness we saw in Buffalo yesterday, where we can say, no, 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 there, 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 there is one new man 
That what marks and defines us first and foremost is that we are children of God. That what I celebrate with my brother, Michael Morris, is that he is like me, that I am like him. And we're from different cultural backgrounds. So I've got some things to learn. He's got some things to learn. But that brother is like me. And the more the church can model that kind of diversity to a world that's still violent towards it was born of the Christian church. Now, have we practiced it perfectly? No, train wreck back there. But the word of God still bears its weight, conforming and shaping us into who we were meant to be. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners, they, as citizens, they share in all things with others, generous, and yet they endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign land is to them their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. So in, in 150 AD, you didn't like your kid. They had something about them you didn't like. You just threw them out to the elements and let them die. It's funny to me that people are still kind of advocating for that kind of rule now in our day. More on that another morning. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. You see the biblical sexual ethic? They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven, the upside down kingdom. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all men. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor yet make many rich. They lack in all things, yet abound in everything. That's radical generosity. They are dishonored, and yet they, they, they're very dishonored. They are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled, but they bless. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. So I've been saying for a couple of years, you were made for the day and the day was made for you. It's this kind of community of faith, generous, loving, not playing the game of the world, but being unto ourselves and unto our God and unto this world, a picture of his kingdom that pushes back darkness and establishes light. But if we are afraid, and remember, the MRI of how you spend your money shows what's first and best to you. If what's first and best to us reveals that actually we're kind of our own God. We, we feel like we've got this. That, that our first and best goes to us. Our first and best goes to some other idol. That, then how are we going to live this out with any integrity? And so next week when we gather, we're going to just talk about what does it look like to bring our first and best? What, what does that mean to bring our first and best to him? And at the end of that, we're still not going to take an offering. Let me pray for us. Father, I bless these men and women. Thank you that you love us, that you're after our souls. You're not after our money nor our mere moral conformity. You want freedom and gladness in the deep places. Help us. We need you. We're, we're drawn to comfort. We're drawn to control. You know it's scary to be us. Help us. We need you. It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen.